Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm going to talk about how my hives are getting on and also review the book Top Bar Beekeeping Organic Practices for Honeybee Health by Les Crowder and Heather Harrell. So as always let's do some homestead updates. I'm sure like many of you, I am feeling the shelter in place order stir crazies and it's definitely affecting my motivation. Um, I definitely have days where I'm sort of moping around the house, feeling bored and trapped inside because it's too wet to go out into the garden and I can't really do anything out there. And uh, I just, I get so stir crazy and cranky about it, which is a shame because I'm lucky that I don't have to be out uh, dealing with people all day and putting my health at risk. So I'm trying to be mindful and grateful of the fact that I am not considered an essential worker. And I'm also trying to put myself on more of a schedule. So in the morning, I'm trying to do, you know, my stationary bike exercise, um, which, you know, it's good for me physically. It's a poor replacement for the swimming, really. But on the plus side, um, I have my stationary bike in my guest bedroom and it looks out over the back of the property. It's right by the window, looks right out over the back of the property and I can see my beehives and my chicken coops and a lot of birds flying through the trees. So it's really a nice view and I shouldn't complain. I just, um, you know, I just miss the freedom of... I think I'll go out and get a cup of coffee or um, I don't feel like cooking. Let's dress up and go to a fancy restaurant. Um, Well, fancy for us, (laughs) Uh, you know, and then even when we do go out, um, I know I've mentioned before that um, the Metro Park system here in Ohio is really, really good. And there's a lot of beautiful parks with hiking trails and most of the parks have sort of circular hiking trails you know so you can do a big old loop and come back and you can kind of choose whether it's a short loop of like half a mile or a couple of miles and some are more strenuous than others you know going up and down hills and crossing small streams and stuff like that well most of the main circular trails are what people want to do so we quickly learned that if we want to maintain appropriate social distance from people we have to avoid those parks And so we go to the Ohio Erie Canal paths instead because it's a huge, I think it's like a hundred miles plus and it's not circular. So you, you know, you walk out as far as you want and then turn around and come back. And a lot of people don't like to do that. So we've been going there because uh, there's less people, we can maintain social distance. And usually it's a lot of bikers and they're pretty good about, you know, ringing their bell or calling out to let us know that they're coming up behind us so that we can step away off to the side of the trail and they can go by at an appropriate distance. Um, But sometimes we went out um, the other day and it was really busy and I was a little nervous about um, people just not really taking social distancing properly. Like, you know, some people want to come over and they want to pet our dogs and um, and I'm just kind of like, you, no, you, you can't. I'm so sorry, but we have to, you know, keep keep at least six foot between us. 
But on the plus side, um, I have a local friend who is self-isolating and um, because of that and because of how careful I am, you know, I don't, I only leave the house once a week. Um, we get together. So it's just the two of us. Um, she comes here or I go to hers, but we take our temperature beforehand and we just kind of drink a bottle of wine and catch up and, oh, um, Saturday we got together and I, I'm not even sure how we found it but somehow we ended up watching this show called My Strange Addiction and it's just it's horrifying and we couldn't look away from it and we ended up watching a couple of episodes while eating hot dogs and drinking a bottle of wine so that's our new um that's our new moment of sanity in all this is that we get together once a week we have some drinks we eat like hot dogs or cheese and crackers and um we watch trashy television now back home in england things are much more difficult for people and there's a lot of food so- uh, shortages and um it's really hard to get food delivered and it's just not great and my brother actually started a new job that happens to be in healthcare so i'm pretty worried about him Um, They are, you know, taking appropriate measures as best they can, but it's just not great. And I worry because he lives with my mum and my mum is older, so she's more at risk. And she also has Crohn's, which is an autoimmune disease. So that puts her more at risk as well. And I just, I really hope that he doesn't inadvertently carry something, you know, become a carrier, bring it to the house. My mum gets sick. Um, because I can't get on a plane and visit them. And I just, I try not to think about it too much because if I really think about how for the first time since I moved to the US, I can't fly out there and make sure they're okay. It really, really scares me. So I try not to focus on that. I'm trying to stay positive and we're staying in touch with email and Skype. And, um, I'm just, you know, trying to make sure that I reach out to the people that I love and see how they're doing and remind them about some of the small things. Like, you know, if you go and pick up your mail, even just from the mailbox, make sure you disinfect the door handles and your hands afterwards and all that kind of stuff. And my mum's being great about it. So I know that they're taking um, precautions. Here in Ohio, the weather has been crazy in the last about five days so we had this beautiful 70 degree day with blue skies and sunshine and then that evening was a huge thunderstorm with a tornado warning and hail then we had snow um then a day of just violent bursts of rain between bouts of sunshine followed by more snow and then night temperatures that have been regularly falling into the 30s and even dropping below freezing And before this all started, I had just taken the hive wraps off two of my hives, the stronger two. But when I woke up in the morning and I saw snow, I quickly grabbed them back from from storage and I ran out there and I I put them back on. Um, And I... I was worrying because I'd taken the quilt boxes off all of the hives. Um... And only one had the candy board in place because the others seemed to have enough food. So I was really, really worried that this cold front could be a problem. And um, I, putting the hive wraps back on made me feel a little bit better. The chickens are also upset 
um, by the change in weather. So they loved the warm days and were out sunbathing in their runs um, as much as they could and generally just being like happy dust baby chickens. Um, And then the egg laying picked up and I had a couple of days where Um, So I have 10 chickens, nine of which are capable of producing eggs. And then Agatha doesn't lay eggs anymore because she's so old. Um, And I had like days where I got, you know, nine eggs every day or eight eggs. Um, And so that was awesome. But then the bad weather comes in and it's like they go on strike, you know. So I go out and I get three eggs or four eggs and they're not happy about it. And they like to yell at me. Um, They think I control the weather because I control everything else um but I always tell them it's not my fault babies I like the sunshine too one of my girls and I don't know who it is um because I have a lot of hens that lay brown eggs in the big coop one hen since spring has been producing a really big almost completely spherical egg with a lovely thick shell in a deeper brown color than the others it's always the biggest egg it barely fits in the extra large cartons that I have and I learned the hard way that if I try too hard to close the lid this egg will actually cause the eggs next to it to crack because it's so strong Um, so I don't know who's producing that I I am guessing purely based on body size, which isn't the best indicator, but it's the closest that I can get to, is that it might be my one red girl, but whoever it is deserves an award and it's awesome. And I'm really pleased to see such a big healthy egg coming from my girls. Um, Oh, speaking of the hens, um, my friend who I visit, she came over because she is fascinated by um, the fact that I hang a cabbage in the run or in the coop for the um, the big flock as kind of food and enrichment because, you know, it's I hang it from a string and it's spinning and so they have to work a little harder to pull pieces from it. And she loved the idea and she asked if she could come out and watch. So she came out Um, I hung up a cabbage and she took some pictures with um, a really good camera and I'm going to put those up on the blog. Um, Some of them came out absolutely amazing. Like she's still figuring out um, the focus and she realized afterwards that she'd actually accidentally put the wrong lens on. But I think they came out great and uh, we had great fun and she loves watching them and and she actually um, pets at for me when I was away over Christmas so she's kind of bonded with the girls and I love how delighted she is by them it's just um it's really fun to watch also within the the last week or so I drove out to Ravenna to pick up my bee supplies Um, I'm really really grateful to Blue Sky Bee Supply for staying open while trying to keep us safe so you order online you say that you want to pick it up and what they do is you drive up to the loading dock and you phone them to say hey I'm here I'm at the loading bay and then they come and they bring stuff out and they put it on the loading bay for you and then step back and then you can come in and pick it up and maintain social distancing. So I really appreciate them still 
providing this service for us. And while I was there, I noticed that they had this big stack of wooden pallets that were up against the dumpster. So I asked the lady if I could take two of them, um, if they were planning on disposing of them. And she double checked and they were, they were looking to get rid of them. And so I ended up having to like rearrange my car so that I could put two wooden pallets in there, uh, which is great because I use two pallets on top of four cement blocks as hive stands and I need a new hive stand. So I was super excited. Um, This was one of those days where we'd been told we were having bad weather come through, but there was actually a fair amount of sunshine. So it was like quite a pleasant drive. I was actually in a really good mood. I was just happy to be out of the house. So I, I get my bee supplies. I get these wood pallets that I've been looking for for a while. I'm I'm totally stoked right so I come home and um I take all the bee supplies out and I'm looking at the pallets and they're really heavy and I need to get them to the back of the property now I could have got my heavy duty dolly out but it would have been a little ungainly so I decided that I'm going to drive to the back of the property which is what I've done before and um you know we've had issues with flooding so I put my head into the house and I asked my husband hey do you think that I could drive around the back or do you think it will be too wet and he's like I think it will be fine and here's the mistake this is the mistake that I made um I didn't check for myself I have this thing where because my husband's so smart and I respect him and I admire him so much that I tend to just assume that he's an expert on everything so I'll be I'll ask him a question and if he says like that it's good to go or whatever I'm like well it must be because Henry said it (laughs) when really what I should have done is I should have walked out there looked at the lawn and gone oh it's a bog but I didn't so I jump back in the car I back out of my driveway come up around the side of my property turn onto the grass I'm having the best time and my car gets stuck so I get out and I look at it and I am I'm I am just totally stuck there in the mud and the more we tried to get me out the worse it got and it got and we were doing all that stuff where you like you put cardboard behind the tiles I was digging um out the mud there and I'm just mortified and I really didn't want to have to call a tow company but that's what we were looking at and like neighbors are driving by and um some neighbors are like oh, let me see if I've got a chain to help you. And, um, but they didn't. Um, and then other neighbors are like, let, let me help give you a push. And I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, thank you so much. And then finally, like we were making progress between me and some neighbors. They were pushing. I had been digging out the tires and then we were reversing onto cardboard when one of my neighbors across the way, she has a big truck and she offered to, to pull me out with a chain. Um, and bless her heart, it took two attempts. They pulled me out. At this point, like there's people, we're blocking, <laughs> we're blocking the road and there's two cars waiting to pass. And I'm just like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, and yeah, so finally, <laughs> finally I got towed off my own goddamn front lawn and I thanked everyone. Obviously I couldn't like shake hands or give them hugs or anything. And so my husband was very quick thinking and he gave the people who were giving us a push because we've, never met them before he gave them his card and he said look when the weather's nice give me a call we'll do a barbecue you guys have to come over I mean this is assuming obviously that 
things are better by then and we're not still self-isolating but anyway and then my neighbor who pulled me out is is a good a great neighbor and we stay in contact anyway so I was just like thank you so much I, I so appreciate it but um I was mortified. So yes, that was my adventure. I have learned a very um, important lesson and I'm not going to be making that mistake again, I hope. No promises. (laughs) So on to Hive news. Um, It looks like my last update covered what was happening with the hives up until March 26th. So I'll be discussing things since then. So I went out Thursday, April 2nd. It was a warm day, over 50 degrees. There was a moderate amount of wind and a mix of sun and shade. And I went out in the afternoon. And um, I'm going to start with hive number one, which is Queen Caredwin. This is the hive that came out just exploding. It's just so strong and it's really impressive. So I went in, I found my queen, I found eggs, and I found brood. Uh, the growth is just outstanding on this hive. Um, since the 26th, they've gone from 1.5 frames of brood to about five to six. So that's really impressive. They've started going through their honey stores, but they're also bringing nectar and pollen in. I took the mouse guard off. I ended up reversing the boxes again. So I ended up moving um, the brood, the box with the brood onto the bottom, then there's honey and empty comb above them so that the queen can move upwards to lay more eggs and then on top of that I put an empty box because there's so many bees that I was worried that they might think about swarming. Um, I also took this opportunity I took two frames of mixed brood from this hive to boost my weak hive. So how I did this is um, I found the queen, I set her frame aside and then I chose the two frames of brood and I temporarily put them into an empty super which I covered while I finished up my hive inspections. Um, And just kind of as an aside, I thought it was so sweet how the um the frames of brood that I took out most of the bees on it were nurse bees because those are the bees that work in the brood nest um like taking care of the babies feeding the larva cleaning up all that kind of stuff and when I put them in the super they're all turning so their little faces are peeking out now sometimes if you go in a hive and all the bees turn to face you that can be a sign that you're going to get stung because if a lot of foragers and guard bees are watching you, it usually means that they're a little defensive. And if you mess around with them, they might sting you. But when it's nurse bees, they're not, they're not aggressive at all. But it was so cute. Like their little faces just all peering up like, what's going on? Where are we? You know, so I just, I gently covered them to help keep them calm and also to prevent, um, like wasps or anything flying in because uh, when I was going through the rest of this hive, um, this huge wasp, I'm I'm not sure if it's one of the quote unquote bad wasps or not. It kind of just landed on top of the frames and I didn't even think, I just, I killed it instantly because it became a habit last fall because every time I opened the hives, you know, there's a lot of robbing behavior from other insects like wasps. And so I just squished this poor thing and I'm not even sure if it meant to land on the hive. So sorry, wasp, that was, you know, that wasn't great. But if it's between my bees and a wasp, I'm sorry, the wasp is dead. Anyway, 
so I went in, I did this, I uh, sprinkled a little pollen over the top couple of frames, just, I mean, they're bringing in pollen, but I had it with me. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll sprinkle some, uh, uh, I should say sprinkle some pollen substitute on top. And I left the candy board on and I left the wrap on during this visit. So then I moved on to hive number two, which is queen marker. And this is my second strongest hive. I confirmed queen, eggs and brood were all present. There has been an increase in brood since the last inspection, but it's not explosive like what I saw with hive number one. Uh, The candy board was still on and I sprinkled a little pollen sub on there. I left the wrap on and I actually left the quilt box on during this visit. And then hive number three is Morrigan. This is the weak hive. This is the one that I'm worried about. Um, I confirm the presence of queen eggs and brood. It's a very slow build up in this hive. There's a, a really small amount of brood present and a, like there are eggs, but not as many as I was hoping to see. Um, I reversed the boxes. Um, so I ended up putting a deep with the honey on the bottom and the brood box above because I was worried that they didn't have anywhere to expand into. Um, and then what I did is I took another super with, okay, so actually let me clarify. So right now hive number three has a deep box on the bottom, which is filled with unused, uncapped, I'm sorry, unused capped honey on the bottom. And then there's a deep box on top of that, which is the brood box and the outer frames have some honey and pollen in. And then the inner frames, there's a frame, I think it's just one frame that had brood on it. And then the frames bracketing the brood frame are um, built up comb, but empty. So they're putting pollen in there and there's room for the queen to lay more eggs. Then what I did is I put a couple of sheets of newspaper on top of this brood box took another super put that on top of the newspaper and in this super I put those two frames of brood from hive number one into it and then filled the rest with empty comb using as much built up frames as I had on hand but some didn't have wax on I just didn't have um, enough built up frames spare so the plan here is that I'm hoping that um, to unite the bees from hive one that were on that those frames of brood with the bees from the weak hive now to be honest I actually think I could have done this without using newspaper because the weak hive has a lot more problems and I don't think they would have been aggressive to the nurse bees but I didn't want to take any risks so I used the newspaper method to merge these two different uh, groups of bees I took the quilt box off during this visit And then I put the candy board on top of that um, brood, new brood box, and I put the wrap back on. So I had the option again to go out on Monday. This was April 6th. It was low 50s in the afternoon, a little windy and a mix of sun and shade. So I started with hive number one again. There were queen, I found the queen, I found the eggs, I found brood. And this time there were three full frames of brood, most of which was capped in the bottom box with a really lovely pattern. So she's laying her eggs like a champ. She's, um, they're filling in pollen. They've got honey coming in the outer frames. It looks good. So the way things are right now is this bottom box with brood in it is a medium. And then I have a deep on top of that. 
And the queen was in the deep box, clearly looking for places to lay eggs. I did find some eggs in this box. So this is actually pretty good. So she's got brood in the bottom. I put a box on top so she'd have room to move up. And that's what she's done. And she started laying some eggs there and was busy finding new cells to lay more eggs in and then on the sides of where she's laying eggs are some empty frames but with built out wax so she can just lay when she wants and then on the edges of that is pollen and some honey frames on the top box um the top box is a deep and it's mostly unbuilt frames because I didn't have frames with wax available but I did move one frame of honey up there to encourage the bees to come up now it's a little early in the year for them to be producing wax but this hive is so bountiful and they have so much food and um I had also been feeding them up to this point that I'm kind of optimistic that they might start uh building wax on these frames but mainly I wanted the box because I want them to feel that they have room to expand because I am very aware of the fact that this um this hive is going to be the one to watch for swarming during this visit I removed the candy board they weren't really using it anymore and this is when I took the wrap off because I thought we were going into nice weather and I thought it was warm enough and they were active enough that they'd be okay without the wrap I made a note in my journal about everything I've discussed, but I also made a note to keep an eye on this hive for signs of swarming and to track the amount of brood they're producing because I would like to make nucleus colonies once we're in full nectar flow and to see what they're doing with wax buildup. But overall, this is my strong hive. The population is big and strong and I'm seeing what I want to be seeing here. I'm seeing a lot of foragers coming in and out. I'm seeing great brood expansion, beautiful egg laying pattern and the queen is moving from the bottom to the middle box freely to lay eggs so in hive number two I found my queen I found eggs and I found brood um, again the bottom box is a medium the top box is a deep the queen and the brood were in the bottom box she has three frames of brood mostly full with a good pattern but it's not as packed as freight as um hive one so of the three brood frames the middle frame was the fullest and then the two frames bracketing it had some brood but more eggs so that's a good sign she's moving around and she's laying her eggs and then bracketing those frames are you know pollen and honey stores coming in the uh, upper box is filled with or being filled with nectar and pollen and they have mostly built up comb in there so they can just bring their stores in and just put it right in this is the hive that was still very much using the candy board they were all over the fondant and the pollen sub i put in there and they were very actively consuming it so i decided to leave it on but I did remove the wrap during this visit and overall I felt that things are looking good and the level of buildup I'm seeing in this hive is what I would expect to see as opposed to hive one which has been you know surpassing all my expectations and hive three which is making me worry so hive three I found my queen again I found eggs and I found brood um, the bottom box is a deep and it's mostly honey with some empty comb the middle box is another deep with um, honey, built up wax frames and um, 
one frame of kind of sparse brood and eggs, which, eh, I mean, I'll take it, but I'm not happy about it. Um, Now, I will say that the way the sun was coming in and out from behind clouds made it really hard to see eggs. So my hope is that I missed a number of eggs in this hive and that she is laying more than I think she is. But honestly, if I don't see an improvement from this queen, she's not going to be here by the time we get to summer because I'm going to have to requeen. But fingers crossed, she's just a slow starter. Now the top box, which if you remember, this is what had the frames of brood from my strong hive. That's looking good. The, um, you know, they're busy in there. They are working the brood nest. It's looking really, really good. So I went ahead and I removed the newspaper. I took the candy board off as well because they're just not really using it. But I left the hive wrap on because this is my weak hive and I didn't want to risk even a minor chill coming in because they have a much smaller amount of bees. Now I have seen activity beginning to increase in terms of foraging and orientation flight. So my hope is that um, the capped brood that I put in is going to start hatching. They're going to work their way through, you know, the nursery. And then as they get older, they'll become foragers. And I'm just kind of hoping that it's going to give this hive the boost that they need to make it through to when we have the good weather and a strong nectar flow. So I really just feel like I don't want to be cocky, but I want to say that I feel that I might have got them through the worst of it. And I feel more confident that the colony will survive, but whether the queen is going to make it through the year is still up in the air. Because if I don't see an improvement from her, then I might have to just accept the fact that either she's ill or she was poorly mated last year and she's just not going to be strong enough um, to build up this hive where I need them to be to get through next winter. So she, my Queen Morrigan, she's, you know, kind of on the cutting block and I'll let you know how things go. So then on Thursday, April 9th was when the cold front came in. We had snow and icy rain. So I ran outside. I put the hives, uh, the hive wraps back on hive number one and two. Um, And I, you know, I made sure that I always put bricks on top of the hives to um, help, you know, stop predators from pulling the lids off, but also helping them not get blown over. And I also took this opportunity, even though the weather was bad, to take my... uh, nuke box and put it on top of my shed I use bungee cords to attach it to the um the step railing as a swarm trap or lure so that if we keep having like these random nice days and a hive decides to swarm maybe they'll be lured in there I have a frame in there with some old wax I have um some cotton buds with lemongrass oil on then that nuke box was out last year so it's like weathered wood so hopefully it doesn't smell too alien um and fingers crossed a swarm will find it that's the hope anyway okay so that's all my news for the hive so far oh although sorry i will say yesterday was kind of a meh day But in the afternoon, um, the rain went away briefly. It got kind of warm and humid. And so, of course, 
I ran out and I went and I looked at my hives and um, the strong hive was just boiling with activity. The bees were out. They were um, doing their orientation flights. They were on the hive, like licking up the drops of rainwater. They were coming in and out from a quick forage. It was really just incredible. And the sound of them flying around, it was like the summer, you know, like every time I go near the hives in the summer, it's just like, you know, the whole time. And I love it and I missed it. So that was incredible. And then my second strongest hive, they had a good amount of forages and my weak hive was meh. It was like three or four bees. So I took some video, I came in, my husband, he's so supportive and he's just like, oh, how are the hives? You know, what are they doing? So I show him the videos. And then I realized that I had forgotten to do something in the chicken coop. So I ran back out to do it. And I looked over at the hives and it was like the weak hive had just needed an extra like couple of minutes to wake up because suddenly there's a lot more activity. I can see foragers coming out and I took an extra clip of video of just that hive and it made me feel much more optimistic about how they're doing. And I'm just hopeful that, um, you know, this continued bad weather isn't going to harm them. And that, um, I mean, I know they have food in there. I know they have a ton of honey. They've been amazing about bringing pollen in. Um, and actually, um, I noticed that um, the trees are waking up now. So for a while, we had, you know, some shrubs and um, that were flowering, kind of a handful of them. And then um, I, we had some daffodils come up and I've seen like a couple of bulbs like blooming, but there hasn't been a lot of dandelions and the trees have been uh, what I call quiet. But today is my day where I go shopping. And when I was driving around, I realized that the trees are waking up. I'm seeing buds. I'm seeing like that pale new spring green coming on from the trees. Um, I noticed there were dandelion flowers beginning to open. And so I wonder if this is true spring now. Um, I'm wondering if if the trees, I, I don't know if I'm being uh, like magical thinking, but I, I almost feel like when the trees start to wake up, that's when we're kind of going into proper spring. So fingers crossed because um, this hopefully means like more pollen and more nectar. And it means that um, my bees are going to have more to eat on the days where it's nice for them to come out. So with the hive update done, um, what I wanted to do this week is talk about um, a book that I read. So I had originally planned to hopefully do an in-depth episode on top bar hives based on my research but a couple of things went wrong there. So the first thing was that I bought this book, Top Bar Bar Beekeeping Organic Practices for Honeybee Health by Les Crowder and Heather Harrell, which I'd always heard as being sort of the book on top bars. And I had planned to use that as my basis and then also get Christy Hemingway's book, She is the top bar beekeeper and educator that I mentioned in my last episode whose workshop I went to. And um, I was like halfway through my notes and I realised that I'd completely forgot to order her book. So I decided based on that, that what I would do instead is I would would break down 
everything into just book reviews. So today I'm going to review the Les Crowder book. Once I have Christie's book, I'm going to review that. Um, I'm also, um, I've got some fiction books about bees that I'm planning on reviewing and um, some Thomas Seeley books that I also plan to review. Um, And so for a while, I think what might be happening with my episodes as I kind of, you know, my bees wake up and we're moving into more management is I will do what I did today where I do like um, maybe 30 minutes or so about what's going on with my hives and my chickens and then um, another 30 minutes or however long um, on a book that I've reviewed that is somehow relevant to beekeeping or chicken keeping or homesteading, uh, whether it's non-fiction or fiction. So today's book, once again, it's Top Bar Beekeeping, Organic Practices for Honeybee Health by Les Crowder and Heather Harrell, who at the time of publication were married to each other. And it's kind of sweet in the opening comments, Les Crowder talks about how um, he's sort of the beekeeper of the couple, but Heather Harrell, um, he talks about what a wonderful writer she is. And so he would um, talk about what he wanted to say and she was actually the one who was writing it, which I think is lovely. Uh, sadly, since this book was published, uh, they're actually divorced now. And I believe that um, Les Crowder's remarried. But anyway, I still thought it was nice that they wrote it together. So I'd like to do a little info about each of the authors. And I've just taken it directly from the book themselves because I feel like it's the best summary of each. So these are direct quotes. Les Crowder has devoted his entire adult life to the study and care of honeybees. Dedicated to finding organic and natural solutions for problems commonly treated with chemicals, he designed his own top bar hives and set about discovering how to treat disease and genetic weaknesses through plant medicine and selective breeding. He has been a leader in his community, having served as New Mexico's honeybee inspector and president of the state's beekeeper association. He is an avid storyteller and has spoken at the New Mexico Organic Farm Conference every year for over 15 years. Um, For Heather Harrell, her About the Author section says... Her love of nature soon had her pursuing a life as an organic farmer, focusing on flowers, then medicinal herbs. Over time, and through her work with honeybees, Heather has moved her focus to the study of multi-use permaculture plantings, which support a diverse network of interrelationships in the natural world. Along with a wide variety of vegetables, she grows medicinal herbs, which offer nectar and pollen to pollinator species. She is very interested in how soil biology is affected by using biodynamic methods of planting and is currently studying compost teas incorporating various types of manures and plant materials. So, as you can see, Les is kind of more the beekeeper, but Heather is very, very involved in organic farming, flowers, herbs, and um, is is really kind of keying into a lot of the things that we as homesteaders need to think about. So the main focus of this book is on natural methods of management or as natural as possible. And in this sense, natural seems to mean what the bees would do in the wild and how we can look at that and try and make the way that we keep them as close to that as possible. So overall, I actually have very mixed feelings about this book. 
Um, I had heard that it was the definitive book on top bar hives. And so I was really eager to um, find a lot of detailed information about top bar management, especially in regards to how it differs from Langstroth management techniques. But instead, the book is more of an introductory guide to beekeeping in general, with really just one chapter that gets into the nitty gritty of top bar management. Um, also, due to the time of publication, which was 2011, some of the information is outdated. So you'll see references to varroa mites sucking blee, uh, blee, bee blood, which we now know that they don't. They're actually consuming the fat bodies of bees. But this is to be expected of an older book. And you're going to see that in many books that I actually recommend because science is always progressing, right? So we only found out about varroa consuming fat bodies quite recently. Now, throughout the book, there are a number of excellent citations, but, and this, this is really my sticking point. When Les Crowder claims that he is completely free of Varroa mites, there's nothing to prove that. Um, and by this, I mean, he doesn't get into the nitty gritty of it. And I, I'll talk about this in detail later on. There's also... <sighs> Throughout the book, there's there's a distinct kind of vibe of science is bad versus natural practices which are good. And I found it confusing because the author readily cites scientific papers and studies to support things that he's seen or things that he believes about the hive. So he does recognize the value of the scientific method in terms of learning about our bees. But there's also kind of this general feeling through his text that he's a little suspicious or disdainful of science. And I don't know if it's like whether he kind of is falling into that fallacy of well science is where miticides and chemicals and pesticides and stuff came from so it has to be bad unless it says something that I agree with or if it's more about um if you've ever heard Les Crowder talk and then if you read this book like he's definitely got a little bit of a hippie vibe going and um <laughs> hippies aren't like generally speaking hippies aren't very trustful or trusting of um like science or um convention I guess and I'm I'm not using hippie as a slur by any means because I'm definitely kind of a a bit of a hippie myself um, but I'm just kind of wondering if that's where that general feeling from his prose comes from and um he also <laughs> He also leans so heavily, heavily natural that he recommends using like handfuls of grass instead of a bee brush and a twig to scoop lava when you're queen grafting and stuff like that. And it just seems a little unnecessary. Like uh, I would rather have a more reliable grafting tool because it can be hard to find one that is the perfect size or whatever. And I wouldn't want to just have to like go through a ton of twigs to find one, but I don't know. So anyway, that was a little bit of a meh for me but what I'd like to do is I'm going to break things down into um, what I liked about the book what I'm kind of neutral about and what I really didn't like so I'm going to start with the good or what I liked 
So straight off the bat, um, Les Crowder writes about how he experimented with different sizes and styles of top bar hives before settling on his final design. And I really loved that. I loved that he tried lots of different things. Um, He looked at different styles and then he just tested them out himself until he came up with something that seemed to work the best for his bees. And I love that he shared that process. It was very um, interesting and informative. And then he provides a good, clear guide on how to build your own top bar hive using a single board for the hive body. And I'm going to see if I can get a good picture of that. It's really well done. And it's very simple. And I feel like even I, who am not very handy, could follow it. He also gives a concise overview of the role of bees within a hive from worker to drone to queen. He discusses important things like hive placement, how weather can affect your bees' um, temperaments, uh, how smokers work, how you can best keep it lit, how you can get bees, um, how to do hive removals, what's involved in swarm catching and swarm prevention, how to transport your bees and things like that. So kind of almost everything that a beekeeper might come across and might need to know. Uh, He also details two ways in which to transfer bees from a Langstroth to a top bar hive, which is very useful. So the first way is what he calls brushing a swarm. And this is where you go into your Langstroth and you find the queen, cage her and move her into the top bar hive. Then you literally take each comb from the Langstroth and just gently brush all the bees into the top bar hive. So they're just falling down into that hive. Um, And then eventually you close everything up. Now, because their queen is there, the idea is that most of those bees that you brushed in are going to stay in the top bar. But obviously any forager bees who are out are going to return to where the Langstroth is located. And that gives you an option to let them raise their own queen. So you end up with two hives, one Lang and one top bar. Or you can always requeen the Langstroth hive if that's what you want to do and you have access to a well-mated queen. The other method he discusses, and this one I found really um, imaginative, is the top bar hive super method. So what he says to do is you take your top bar hive and you make a hole in the bottom of it, which is about four by four inches, and then you place it on top of a Langstroth hive. And what you want to do is you want to seal the bottom entrance of the Langstroth so that All the bees in the Lang have to go up through the top bar hive to exit and enter. And this is basically turning a top bar hive into a super for the Langstroth. And the idea is that um, once most of the brood in the Langstroth hive have hatched and the top bar hive has six to eight full combs, you can then remove the top bar and place it in its permanent position, making sure that you take the queen with you. Then the remaining frames in the Langstroth can be either separated and given to like maybe you have another Langstroth hive or you can allow them to requeen if they um, if you make sure that you leave them eggs in which to do so or you can put a, another queen in there yourself. So I thought that was really smart. I never would have thought of that. And it seems like that could actually be a pretty good way of transferring your colony from a Langstroth into a top bar although obviously it takes some time and patience and a little bit of managing. Now the real um, like delight and 
informative section of this book is the hive management chapter. It has excellent diagrams and really clear instructions on how to manage the comb and colony buildup in your top bar, including things like how to space the frames to encourage straight wax building, how to expand the brood nest, how to rearrange frames for honey harvest, how to prepare for splitting a hive and so on. Um, There's even a diagram that shows how to turn a top bar hive into a queen cell building colony if you want to uh, start rearing queens using your top bars. And so this is the chapter that is just the most invaluable and kind of makes purchasing the book worthwhile because it's just so concise and the diagrams are just really well done and I will try and get a clear picture of at least one of the diagrams to post on my blog. There's a lot of discussion in the book about removing old comb and how important it is as it appears to help prevent the spread of disease and therefore seems to boost overall hive health. So that was new information for me and makes perfect sense and I'm glad that he reiterates it throughout the book. There's also um, detailed instructions on how you can remove old comb without wasting what the bees are providing us with in terms of honey and the wax itself. There's a whole chapter, chapter five, on the seasons and what you can expect to see within the hive and how to manage the hive throughout the seasons. There's another chapter, chapter seven, which is all about evaluating the quality of your queen, including things like egg laying, disease resistance, requeening, temperament of the colony, drone laying queens, and intercased queens, which is a new terminology for me. So in our little terminology corner, an intercased queen is created from an egg that was reared as a worker bee before it was changed to a queen. So usually that would be kind of an emergency situation. They didn't have any young eggs that were ideal to raise as queens. They were forced to use an egg that had already started being reared as a worker bee before being changed over to a queen. And as a result, the ovaries of this queen never fully develop, which means that she will be completely unable to lay fertile eggs. Um, And so if you find an intercased queen uh, you just have to get rid of her and requeen that hive Um, there's no way to make her a good queen sadly Um, there's a chapter that runs down some of the common diseases that you're going to find or issues that you might have which included things like nosema insecticide poisoning tracheal mites etc Uh, There's an entire chapter, chapter nine, on raising queens that was really thorough and very easy to understand. Um, I always feel like my eyes are crossing when I'm reading about queen rearing. It just, it feels very complicated to me. And I felt that this chapter was very well done and um, is a good, definitely a good introduction if you are interested in learning about queen rearing. And then what I really loved is the last chapter offers a list of plants that are good for your bees, which is so important. I mean, I just finished my edible garden series and so much of that was about pollinator plants. So I loved the fact that it was included. Next, I have what I'm calling the neutral or what I'm eh about. So this is stuff that I'm kind of like, eh, I don't entirely agree or I don't entirely disagree, but it's kind of interesting. I don't have a strong opinion about it. So one thing was feeding the bees. Um, Les Crowder basically says that hives shouldn't be fed, um, that they shouldn't need to be fed, that if we're doing things right, we 
shouldn't need to put food in there. Uh, but he also says that he's not dogmatic about it. And so if a hive really seems to need the boost, it's okay to feed. He also says that he doesn't like pollen substitutes, that he feels they're unnecessary. I do mostly agree. I'm not sure how much my bees really use my pollen substitute, but I kind of feel like it's something that makes me feel better and I'd rather have it and offer it than not. And then he also talks a lot about wax moths as symbiotes. So it's his opinion, and I think there's some evidence that definitely does support this, that wax moths can actually live symbiotically in a healthy hive because they will primarily use the old and the dark comb that bees will start to shun in a um, in a top bar hive. And so he basically is making this argument that we shouldn't really be worrying about wax moths. We should be worrying about the health of our hive and that a healthy hive can handle wax moths. But he also suggests that um, you should... Just assume they're there, even if you don't see them. So for instance, if you are cutting uh, like comb honey for storing to freeze it uh, before it goes into storage or before you sell it, because if there is wax moth larva in the healthy, young, new comb, the freezing will kill it and it won't hatch while the honey's in storage and then like eat everything in that packet. Um, so yeah, I don't really have strong opinions about that either way. And now we get to what I have called the bad or what I didn't like. And going back to feeding again, uh, Les Crowder suggests that if you need to feed your bees, you should feed them honey. But he doesn't say where the honey should come from. And this is the sticking point for me. So these days in beekeeping, it's not recommended to feed honey to your bees unless you produce that honey yourself. So you know exactly how the hive was managed. You know the health of the hive it came from and you feel secure giving it back to your bees. And there's a couple of reasons for this. And one of them is that um, the first one is that honey at the store might not be honey in the sense that I know I've talked about this before that um, some products labeled as honey that you can get at the supermarket can be called honey even if they only have like 15% actual honey in them and the rest is basically just sugar syrup and one of the sugar syrups used most is uh corn syrup and if you feed that to your bees it can actually make them sick uh there's also been tests that show that honey that has been like sourced from China but packaged in the U.S. it can say that it's from the US, even though it came from China, and it can be contaminated with all kinds of things. And then there's also the case that maybe you get honey from your neighbor down the road who you really, really like, and you know he raises nice bees, and you think, well, there's no harm in that. It's local honey. He's a good guy. He's a good beekeeper. I'll feed it to my bees. But what you don't know is what if his bees carry, I don't know, like nizema or some kind of disease that could potentially be transmitted through the honey um, and make your bees sick? Or what if you don't know that he actually heats his honey uh, and then you give that to your bees? There's all kinds of things, basically. And it's also an issue of biosecurity, which I've talked about before, which is the idea of like you're not trying to introduce disease to your hives. Now, Les Crowder actually claims that healthy bees can handle any introduced bacteria or disease from using honey but fails to offer a citation for this claim. And 
I'm going to talk about these lack of citations a bit because it really stood out to me that in a book that is so well cited, I mean, so many authors don't do citations period and he is amazing like the whole back section is just I cited this study and I cited this book and I cited this talk and blah blah it's excellent it's so good and it gives you a sense of security it lets you double check his claims and then it also um, gives you something else to find like if he mentions something that piques your interest you can be like oh he cited this author I'm gonna go find that and read it for myself but he makes this claim oh bees can handle bacterial disease from any honey but nothing backs that up that's just his opinion so I didn't like that um and again I know I mentioned this before sometimes he comes across as like really suspicious or scornful of like science as a whole while also using scientific studies to booster his own beliefs so it just felt like a little hypocritical and then also like there's not just science with a capital S, which is one thing. It's like there's the or there's all kinds of things that affect beekeeping, right? So there's scientists who study the honeybee. There's scientists who study what they eat. There are scientists who study soil quality and how that affects plants, which can then eventually affect what uh, the health of the honeybee. There are scientists who make pesticides and scientists who study pesticides. There are scientists who study how pesticides affect pollinators and honeybees. You know, it's not one big conglomerate that we can say that's good, that's bad. End of story. It's it's all kinds of fields of study within what we're calling science. So that kind of just I don't know rubbed me the wrong way, and I and I could be biased because my husband's a scientist. If I could go back in time, I would tell myself not to bother with a humanities degree. I would have gone into biology. I sometimes still consider doing it, you know, so I don't know, take it with a grain of salt, but I didn't like it. Um, in the chapter on diseases, uh, two things really stood out to me. His comments on foul brood and varroa. And I'm going to start with foul brood. Firstly, he doesn't differentiate at all between European and American foul brood. And that's a huge issue. If you have European foul brood, that's not great, but you can treat your hives. If you have American foul brood, that is really, really bad. And most states have in place regulations about how you go about testing for that, what happens once you prove that you have it, and how you can safely dispose of those hives. And it sometimes involves having to burn everything, your bees, your equipment, everything, because American foul brood is so contagious and absolutely devastating to populations. So it bothered me that the author didn't make any difference between the two. And then he also says that foul brood is the result of old comb not being removed from hives. So in his opinion, if we basically get rid of old comb in our hives, whether it's Langstroth or um, top bars, then foul brood won't be an issue. And he just kind of underplays how devastating American foul brood is he doesn't talk at all about what to do if you suspect that you have it. Like, how do you test? Where can you send your samples? And who do you need to notify? Even though he tested for this as a state inspector and he states that, but he doesn't give you the tools to know what to do. And he goes on to say that like, you know, beekeepers have been just dosing hives with antibiotics 
um whether they test for foul brood or not and he doesn't agree with that and i completely agree antibiotics should not be used prophylactically that's not something that is a good idea for bees or for people you know you don't say oh well i'm worried i'm going to get you know a bacterial infection so i just take an antibiotic every day no that's how we end up with resistant strains of disease and bacteria but it just bothered me that he doesn't talk about what you can do he basically just says get rid of all the old comb and you'll be fine oh and then breed for foul brood resistance in bees but he doesn't state well what does that look like for for the average beekeeper who's considering breeding for foul brood resistance where do I start well he doesn't say so that just really really bothered me if you suspect that you have foul brood please go look up your state regulations, look up your state beekeepers association and find out what you need to do because it's very important that we take it seriously. All right, so my biggest issue with this book is Varroa. Or I guess I should clarify his Les Crowder's attitude to it. And I'm going to try and break this down as best I can. But basically, as I said before, I have heard Les Crowder talk on podcasts, on interviews, and he always talks about how he has beaten Varroa through natural beekeeping techniques. And the top bar hive is a key part of that method. And so that's part of why I was really eager to to read this book, because I was like, yes, educate me, tell me how you did it. I want to know. We all want to know how to be free of Varroa. But the book dedicates three and a half pages to Varroa mites and it doesn't cover anything about testing or mite threshold levels or anything about that. Um, In fact, based on what he writes, he doesn't appear to test his hive's period and the only method of testing which I'm putting in quotes that he even mentions is drone sampling which is when you open up sealed drone cells to just visually look for mites and then he also mentions just looking at your adult bees for mites but visual inspection has long been shown to not adequately give you an appropriate count in fact if you can see varroa mites in your cells and in and like just crawling on your bees or holding onto your bees, that colony is likely well above threshold levels and it's already dead and just hasn't stopped breathing yet and is about to implode in a huge mite bomb that's going to infect everyone around you. So if you have heard him talk about being miticide free, not using miticides and being varroa free, and you're hoping to learn his secret through this book, then you are just shit out of luck because he doesn't clarify at all. Um, Instead, Les Crowder simply states that he has, and this is a direct quote, established total resistance to Varroa mites in my hives. How, you may ask? Through top bar use and breeding for resistance. Do you want any more details on that? Or dare I say any evidence? Well, you're not going to find it here. There is none. The most that he mentions is he selected for resistance, but he doesn't really say what that looked like. He doesn't give you an idea of of what he did so that you might consider doing the same thing. Um, 
kind of the most he talks about is that he um, was one of the earlier people to get involved with the Russian honeybee stock that was brought to the US by a USDA researcher. Again, a scientist who apparently is good here. Um, And then he also talks a little bit about how he had uh, experimented with creosote smoke as a miticide and had very good success using it combined with brood breaks. And I do, you know, brood breaks, that's a great way of helping prevent or helping lower your mite count. And also, I mean, I've never heard anything about using different kinds of smoke as an attempt to treat mites. I thought that was very interesting. I'd love to read more. And yeah, I think that's a great idea that he did it. But again, there's no discussion of mite level counts. There's no details about like how many of his hives absconded or swarmed um, as he was trying to achieve uh, resistant bees. How long did it take him to start to see mite resistant traits in his hives? Did he deal with things like being reinfected by neighbors or feral colonies? He just says, I'm Varroa free and I have been for years and that's it. So I thought, well, you know, this is a relatively small book. Maybe he just didn't want to get into uh, like a huge treatise on Varroa. So I jumped online and I wanted to see if maybe he had like a dedicated website or if he shared um, like journal articles, you know, uh, with bee groups or bee associations or whatever. And I couldn't find anything. Uh, He did have a website at one point, but he's let the domain expire. So I don't have access to the articles. I couldn't find any like articles that he's written or shared. I couldn't find any forum posts. Um, I just find a lot of references to him saying I'm Varroa free. Um, And there's also a lot of what. Okay, there's a lot of what I'm going to call appeals to authority, which is basically he'll say I'm Varroa free and I have been because I've been doing this for 30 years. And don't get me wrong, the beekeepers in our communities who have been beekeeping for that amount of time, they deserve our basic respect, they deserve our time and they deserve um, recognition for their dedication. And I'm not going to say that their anecdotes data is worthless or their anecdotes or whatever is worthless because it's not there's so much that experienced beekeepers can teach us but when we're dealing with something like varroa I need more than well I've just been doing it for a long time and I particularly need more if you're saying well I've been doing it for a long time but I don't actually test because I'm just like there's no data I need data I want to if I'm going to do this responsibly, I need to know what you dealt with and what I can expect to deal with if I want to breed resistance. And, you know, again, this issue of citation comes up. He citate, he's like citing things so beautifully through this book. I'm just nerding out about his citations, but he doesn't have anything to back up his claims that he is might free. And the thing is if he's going into if he's had his hives and he goes in and he's not seeing losses over winter and he's not seeing uh symptoms of you know mite transmitted diseases like deformed wing virus and he's never seeing varroa mites on his bees 
then chances are he is below threshold levels. Like even if there are technically mites in there, they're below threshold. So he wouldn't need to treat. But I can't take it on faith that you're mite free because I've looked into natural quote unquote beekeeping methods where people just don't treat with mite. And I've seen people who are losing hive after hive after hive every year. And all they're doing is breeding stronger mites and just constantly purchasing new bees. And they're not working with knowledge that people like Thomas Seeley have provided that say, look, if you don't want to use miticides, here are things that you can do that will help you responsibly breed mite resistant honeybees. So I can't just take your word for it, Les Crowder. And I want to because you you have 30 years of beekeeping experience. You're doing incredible things. You're an amazing educator. Give me your data. I need the data. And if I compare his claims to like, let's say Randy Oliver of scientificbeekeeping.com, which I've mentioned before, and is an incredible resource. He's so detailed and analytical, and he just puts it all there in black and white for you to go through and decide for yourself what the data is telling you. And what I thought was hilarious is I go over to Randy Oliver's website, and I put in top bar hives. And the first thing that comes up is an article on how to treat top bar hives for mites. And the opening sentence is, and I quote, the varroa mite does not care that you're keeping your bees in a top bar hive end quote so I don't know people I'm just I don't know I'm I'm just I'm frustrated this book wasn't what I wanted it to be I I have no greater understanding of what Les Crowder did to breed mite resistant bees and as a result um, I think I've mentioned before that I received the book The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley, which is a new book. It came out in 2019. And it's all about his study of wild feral bee populations that um, became varroa resistant. And so Seeley is a scientist who's been studying honeybees his whole career. And he looked at these feral colonies that had appeared to beat Varroa and he was like okay well what are they doing to allow them to build resistance and can we copy that can we emulate that as people who keep bees in unnatural conditions because whether it's a top bar or a Langstroth hive these aren't natural hive formations for the bees and so that's going to be my next uh bee book that I'm going to review. Um, it's very heavy. It's very dense. Um, some some of the science is beyond me. So it's going to take me a while. I might be breaking it down into chapters, but I am optimistic that Thomas Seeley's book is going to provide for me what I was hoping to find in this Les Crowder book and that I didn't. So overall, now that I have ranted aggressively at you, um, how I would sum up this book by Les Crowder and Heather Harrell is um, it is very it's a well-written book I mean that's just first thing first it's well written it's well edited the diagrams are great the pictures are great it's a beautiful book I do think it's worth purchasing if you are interested in any kind of horizontal hive because that chapter on comb management with the clear diagrams on comb position is just invaluable Um, I could totally see myself 
you know, taking that book out to a lang, um, I'm sorry, a, a top bar hive that I have and referencing it as I work with the bees. I mean, it's just, it's that clear. So if you are interested in any kind of horizontal hive, but especially like kind of a, a classic top bar hive, definitely pick this book up. Um, it's, it's worth the read. It is worth it just for that, those diagrams. But if you had picked up this book a little bit like me, because you've heard Les Crowder say that he's beaten Varroa and you are wanting to learn how to do that yourself, you're not going to find that. Um, if you want to beat Varroa through um, breeding resistant bees, um, I would say pick up any The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley, who offers a 14 point step-by-step section at the end of the book about what we can do in our apiary to breed for resistance. Um, I'm also going to be reviewing at some point Christy Hemingway's book. Um, I've started with her first one, which is her introduction book. And depending on how that goes, I'll probably get her second book, which is the quote unquote advanced top bar book. Um, But what I'd actually really like to do um, for my next episode is review a fictional book that I read recently. Uh, it's called The Bees by Laleen Paul, and you might have heard of it. Uh, it was published in 2014. It received critical acclaim, and it's being classified as everything from a suspense to a fantasy and even a dystopian genre fiction. Um, and it's really about, um, it's like an anthropomorphized view of a hive and we follow the life of uh flora 717 who's a sanitation worker bee of her hive and she's an unusual bee and she goes through an unusual life process and um it's not always biologically accurate which is why it's been sitting on my to read shelf for so long but it is beautifully written it's almost lyrical i loved some of the descriptions um it's it's so inventive. Um, so many times reading this book, I just thought, God, who comes up with this? This is incredible. How did she think of this? This is so amazing. And I, I feel like as beekeepers, there are parts of it that are frustrating because they're so biologically inaccurate, but there's so much more that I think really appeals to those of us who love our bees. Um, and, you know, as I've said a number of times, like, a lot of people want to give or attribute more magic to bees than really exist. So like one book that I might get around to reviewing is The Song of Increase, which I think a lot of new beekeepers hear about. And it's mainly a book written by a woman who is a beekeeper, but she honestly believes the bees are talking to her and they're part of a greater power in the universe. And it's all about magic. Like, And I had a problem with it because... I mean, she actually thinks the bees are talking to her. So, but also because I think that what's magic about bees is their biology, that you don't need to give them higher meaning because everything that they do is somehow magical in its biological process from how they're made, how they can carry pollen, how they carry nectar, how they turn nectar into honey. Uh, It's all incredible. And if you want to call that magic, okay, I can see that. That is the magic of biology. And I felt like this fictional book 
really captured some of that with this beautiful prose that if you love your bees and you're in awe of them and you you're just constantly amazed by the way they work there are so many parts in this book that are going to like grab your heart and really entrance you and really kind of connect with you so that's what I'm going to be reviewing next week um I actually hoped to review it this week but it became just so long and I've already been blathering at you for oh an hour and 15 minutes so um yeah so that's where we are for uh this week I hope it was of interest um oh when I was uploading my episode two weeks ago I saw that I surpassed a thousand downloads so thank you all so so much for listening to me for coming back to each new episode um for following me on my various social medias and hopefully telling other people about me um so that you know I get more exposure and more people listen in I just I'm so grateful thank you so much I really appreciate all of you so as always you know where I am I'm on I'm on Tumblr and I'm on Instagram and I'm um on Twitter and you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com I always love hearing from you I will post um, my website link in the episode description so that you can find um, uh, the episode overview, um, a link to where you can find Les Crowder's book and uh, the scientific beekeeping group and then see some pictures of my girls, by that I mean the bees and the hens eating cabbage and um, oh I'll try and get those diagrams from the book up and so on so please do check out the episode description Uh, be safe remember that if this self-isolating is working it's you're going to feel like nothing's really happening because the people around you will stay healthy so it feels like this illness is very far away and that just means that the self-isolation is working so please stay home whenever you can Go out only when you need to, assuming you're not an essential worker. Wash your hands, disinfect your doorknobs, don't touch your face, don't eat poop. Um, And for all the essential workers out there, uh, thank you so much. Um, We really appreciate you. I hope that this means we're going to start raising minimum wage because we are really learning that we need our cashiers. We need all these people who provide us with food Um, and homesteaders. Thank you for supporting your communities. I've seen such an outpouring of generosity from people who have excess eggs and honey or vegetables or whatever. They're amazing and people are forming neighborhood groups to support the elderly and people who can't leave their homes. So thank you. Keep it up. We're only going to get through this as a community. We can't be selfish and just take care of yourselves. Um, it That doesn't just mean staying away from other people. It means doing things that nourish you. So eat well, try and get your exercise when you can and do things that you enjoy. Read a new book, um, take a long walk in the woods when you can, light some incense, buy a new perfume, whatever is your thing. Don't feel like you have to be super productive right now. If you just need self-care, that is absolutely fine. We're all going through this bizarre time together so thank you my friends keep listening I'll be back in two weeks with more uh homestead news and the review on the bees by Laleen Paul and hopefully you're going to enjoy it so in the meantime remember hug your hands and then wash your hands thanks so much take care of yourselves bye-bye <laughs>